welcome Biltmore Church at the different campuses here in the Asheville area. And for those of you that are joining us by at home, um, I cannot tell you what an honor it is for me to be here with you for a couple of reasons. One, um, I genuinely love your pastor. He has been, as he said in that uh, introduction, we have been friends for a long time. He's been greatly influential on me um, and our church and uh, his wife, Lori, and their family. It's just been such a delight uh, to know. Uh, most of you know that in addition to being your pastor, over the last several months, he's taken on a much larger national role um, in just courageously standing up for the victims of sexual abuse um, in churches across our country. And he has done that uh, with impeccable integrity and courage. Uh, he's been like a male version of Queen Esther, uh, like Mester, I guess maybe we could call him. Uh, but it has been a, he's a man of integrity and humility and faithfulness. Um, and so I'm just grateful, and you are blessed to be able to have him and Lori there serving your church. Um, he also, by the way, is, I believe, the best-looking pastor in uh, the United States. Um, I mean, the man's like, what, 60, and I feel like he doesn't age. He has not changed since I have known him at all. Uh, 60 years old, looks like a 35-year-old GQ model. Um, so uh, on the other end of that spectrum is uh, Pastor Jason Gaston, um, who um, came from our church and uh, loved... No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We loved Jason Gaston. We loved Jason Gaston. He was one of the greatest um, staff members at our church. Uh, losing him, I felt like ripping off an appendage off of, uh, of my body. Um, but um, we knew that God was doing something in his life, and he prepared him for you and you for him. And so as painful as it was for us, um, we, uh, we rejoice at, at the leadership that he's giving, um, giving here. Uh, so I need you to really appreciate and love him uh, because what the Summit Church gave up in giving uh, him to you is something that will make me feel better if I know that you uh, are really appreciating him. Uh, Pastor Bruce won't tell you this. This didn't make it into the introduction, but I've actually been begging Pastor Bruce to let me preach here for years. Um, I got to know him I, right when he became pastor here, and I was like, we got to get to know each other at a, some kind of North Carolina pastor's gathering, and I was like, Pastor Bruce, I would love to come preach. I always wanted to come preach at Biltmore Church. And uh, Pastor Bruce, you know, gracious, humble, but he's like, he's like, J.D., I'm just going to tell you, man, you're not ready. You are not ready for Asheville. I know, Raleigh, you feel like you get, but he says, Asheville's just a different animal. He's like, we're really culturally sophisticated out here, and I just don't feel like you're ready. So just keep working on your messages. And so I did. I took it to heart, and I wrote my first book. I sent him a copy, and I was like, hey, read this. I'd love to come talk about you know, th this book at, at, at Biltmore Church. And uh, Pastor Bruce, like he said in the introduction, he's, man, I read your book right when it came out. And man, you're just not ready. <laughs> you're just not ready for <laughs> Biltmore Church. And so I was a little discouraged, but when we started planting churches and our church started growing and we even planted a church together. So I'm like, hey, we're doing stuff together. I'm ready to come to Biltmore Church. And he said, J.D., you're just not ready. I got elected a couple years ago, president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I promise you the first phone call that I made was to Bruce Frank. And I was like, now I want to come to Biltmore Church and preach. Like, I think I've earned it. He was like, JD, I'm just telling you, man, you're just not ready. And I was like, Bruce, I don't understand. I mean, I've grown a church and I've written a book and I'm president of this convention. I just want to come to Biltmore Church. Bruce, I'll come for free. He was like, now, now you are ready to come as a guest to Biltmore Church. So 
I'm just delighted to be here. This is more of an honor for me than it is for you. Um, uh, but really, what, what friendship our churches have and the way that your church has spoken of around the nation, um, I really am honored. If you've got your Bible, I'd love for you to take it out and open it to the book of Romans. Pastor Bruce told me that you are working your way through the entire Bible this year, which is awesome. He also told me that the week that I was going to be here was the week that you had come to the book of Romans, which I was pretty excited about because Romans is my favorite book in the entire Bible. I spent a whole year preaching through this book. And so I asked Pastor Bruce if I could just do this message as a part of your Through the Bible series. Um, Romans is arguably the most important book in the Bible. And I know that is a huge statement to make, but did you know that every spiritual awakening, every awakening in our country has involved some kind of study of the book of Romans? Uh, Martin Luther, whose study of the book of Romans led to the Protestant Reformation, he said Romans is the most important part of the New Testament and that it was impossible to read, to study, or to ponder the book of Romans too much. He said if the book of Romans was an apple tree, he would climb to the extremity of every branch on that tree and shake every branch as vigorously as he could so that he could get every bit of fruit off of that tree and into his heart. Since I have only got got one sermon on this great book. We're actually going to look at Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17, which is, it is the apex of the book, and it also is one of the most famous missionary texts of the entire Bible. It reads like this, Romans 10, 14. Paul says, how then, how then can they call on him whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the conclusion of 10 chapters of gospel logic. There are three premises in those verses that I want us to explore. The first of those three premises is in verse 17. Here's the first one. Faith, Paul says, only comes by hearing. The gospel is a gift that has to be received. He has explained now for 10 chapters that it has been offered to all, but his question in verse 14 is, how can they call on somebody they've never even heard about? Now, that may strike some of you as unfair. I mean, how does God rightfully condemn people that have never even heard the message? Sometimes we have this image that when somebody dies, um, there's, you know, Jesus appears or God appears at their bedside and says, aha, you never called on Jesus's name. And some of them say, well, I never even heard about Jesus. And, 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 and God says, well, it's too late now. And then as he sends you know, them tumbling down into hell, they're like, Jesus who? And they're falling down into hell and he mumbles tough cookies in, in Latin or something. And that's the way the final judgment goes. And that strikes a lot of people as unfair because God is holding somebody accountable for something they never even had a chance to know. Well, Paul has spent 10 chapters now answering that question. And the short answer is this. Paul explains that all people everywhere have heard about God because God has made himself known to every single person in at least two different ways. This is in chapter one. If you want to hold your finger in chapter 10, don't lose it. And you want to go to chapter one, I'm going to show you a couple of, of things here because it sets you up for the power of chapter 10. 
The first of those ways that we all know about God, he says, chapter 1, verse 19, is through creation. What we see outside of us. We look at the glory and the beauty and the complexity of creation, and we know that it cannot be that nothing times nobody equals everything. The second way that God speaks to us, Paul says, is through our consciences, by what we see when we look inside of us. We look inside of us and we find a a longing for meaning and for immortality. We know that things like love and consciousness, just being conscious, are are not biological illusions that come from the right set of chemicals bouncing around in our cerebral cortex. We have a sense, Paul says, of moral accountability. All people everywhere have a sense of right and wrong. And you just don't see that in the animal kingdom. It's not like there's a gradual you know, evolution of, 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 of a conscience or of guilt. You never, ever see a cat sitting in a corner in tears, distraught over what he just did to that bird. Oh, I just promised myself I would never do that again. I promised myself, but there he was, and he was chirping, and I just lost control. You say, well, yeah, but that's because cats are evil, and you would be correct. But all animals, all animals are wired with a survival of the fittest instinct. Humans, however, have a conscience, a sense of right and wrong. And Paul says that points us toward a judge. If there is an inward law that is given, then that shows us the evidence of a lawgiver somewhere that we have to one day give an account to. These things are clear enough, Paul explains, that all people, see verse 20, all people are without excuse. Our problem, Paul says, is not that we are ignorant of the ways of God. Our problem, he says, is that we have chosen to suppress the knowledge that we do have. That's verse 18. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who, see that word? Suppress. Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That word suppress. Suppression is not the same thing as ignorance. Suppression means that the truth is in there. You just kept yourself from acknowledging it. It's like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. You know, you're, you're holding it down. It keeps trying to pop up around you. Paul says that's what the knowledge of God is like in the human heart. It's, it's always trying to find its way to the surface, but our, 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 our sinful desires, our sinful side is always trying to keep it down. Now, because this is a big issue for people, let me press into this for just a moment. Uh, Pastor Bruce told me that y'all are crazy smart, okay? So I I need you to put your theological big boy pants on for just about five minutes, okay? And we're going to jump into the deep end of the pool, okay? So let me, because this is such a big issue for people. In the first three chapters of Romans, Paul explains that this suppression of the truth happens in three primary forms. The first form, he explains, is that we rebel against the knowledge that we do have. That's that's chapter 2 of the book of Romans. All of us, Paul says, fail to live up to whatever standard of right and wrong we ascribe to. Francis Schaeffer, the um, great American apologist of the 1960s and 70s, he used to say, um, he used to say, he used to ask this, say that on judgment day, he said, it was revealed that there was a tiny little invisible recorder hung around our neck. That only came on when you said the word ought or should. Anytime you said the word ought or should, it it, it just came on. And it recorded what you said. He ought to, she should, I ought to. And that's all that it recorded. And then on judgment day, he said, God were to judge you simply by your ought and should statements. 
He said it would not matter what religion you were in. It would not matter if you were not even religious at all. There is nobody, he said, who would survive a judgment based solely on what they said ought to or should have been done. And so Paul says for all of us, we, we suppress it by just rebelling against it and doing what we want to do instead of what we believe to be right. For others, that suppression comes in the form of distortion. We reshape God into a deity that we can manage or manipulate. Or we exaggerate one attribute of God that appeals to us at the expense of all the others. Every false religion does this. Islam, for example, magnifies God's power but, but disdains his love. Buddhism magnifies his closeness but ignores his holiness. That's the way that every false religion in the world has arisen. It's a distortion of the truth about God. And the third way that some suppress the truth, Paul explains, is they, they just deny it altogether. They just convince themselves that there is no God. Paul says this is self-delusion, fighting against what they instinctively know to be true. Now, some of you say, well, wait a minute. I know an atheist or an agnostic who genuinely, intellectually believes that there is no God. And Paul would say, well, yeah, they may have intellectually convinced themselves that there is no God, but their hearts still know the truth. And the reason that their minds convinced them there was no God is because that's what their hearts wanted to be true. I think of it like this. There's a story of a true story of when the Allied forces liberated um, all these places in Germany and the surrounding region. And there was one city um, that they liberated that right just a, a couple of miles away from it was a concentration camp um, where thousands, tens of thousands of Jews had been executed. And when they, 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 they liberated the town and they, um, they, they, they questioned the mayor and his wife, um, the mayor and his wife said, we had no idea this concentration camp was there. Uh, yes, we heard the trains go by, but we had no idea what was really happening. And these allied generals found it hard to believe. They found it hard to believe, but they took their word for it. The next morning after they had done this examination, they, they came in and found that both the mayor and his wife had hung themselves with a little note left where the place where they'd hung themselves. And, and in the note, what it said is, we knew, but we didn't know because we didn't want to know. We knew, but we didn't know because we did not want to know. Paul would say the same thing is true about the knowledge of God. We knew, we knew, but we didn't know because we did not want to know. Paul's point is that all people everywhere innately know enough about God to turn toward him and away from evil. They may never have heard his name, but their hearts instinctively know that he is there. God has imprinted that on every human being that has ever walked the face of the earth. One of the best illustrations I've ever heard of this, again, true story, Helen Keller. Helen Keller, who most of you know was born blind and deaf, could not talk, could not, um, could not hear, could not see anything. Uh, famous stories about Helen Keller, about how they finally learned to communicate with her. You know this by, by writing on her hand, Annie Sullivan, uh, you know, pours water on her hand, then spells out water, and she has this breakthrough uh, where she begins to communicate. Um, well, Annie Sullivan was a very committed believer, and so after a couple of years of teaching her the basics of sign language, um, she wanted Helen Keller to know about God. Now, keep in mind, this is, she's never seen anything, never heard anything, never had anybody even able to explain to her anything about God. And so she brings in a pastor by the name of Philip Brooks, and Philip Brooks begins to explain to her the truth about God and, and starts to share the gospel with her. And when the moment that he starts talking about God, Helen Keller gets very excited and begins to sign back, oh, is that what you call him? 
I've always known he was there. I just did not know what his name was. And that's not an isolated story, by the way. That's true of all people everywhere. Um, the, um, the Ecuadorians, the, 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 uh, the Waldani tribe that Jim Elliott and his friends tried to reach with the gospel end up all five of them being killed in the 1950s. Later, um, their wives go back in and many of those same tribes people come to faith in Christ. And one of the, um, uh, the tribesmen who had been the one who speared Jim Elliott to death um, said, uh, after he became a Christian, he said, you may think that we all ran around the jungles of Ecuador raping and pillaging and killing because we just didn't know any better. He said, but we all knew that there was something out there that we were going to give an account to and that he or it was very displeased with us. What Paul is saying in Romans 1 through 3 is that the whole human race knows about God and has resisted the knowledge of God. Paul's conclusion about the human race is Romans 3 verse 10. As it is written, listen to this, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Not even one. All have turned away. All have become spiritually worthless. Biltmore, the idea that somewhere out there on a remote island, there's some perfect virtuous native who just wants to do what's right and really know God, that is a myth. All of us from the most sophisticated, educated urban elite to the poor, uneducated tribesmen on a remote island somewhere, all alike have resisted and rejected the knowledge of God. Paul explains right there at the end of chapter 3, that the gospel is God intervening into that world that has universally rejected him, pursuing a people that are running away from him. Chapter three, verse 24, in the gospel, he says, we can be justified freely by his grace to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Key word in that little verse is the word grace, which literally you probably know means totally undeserved favor. God not giving to us what he owed us, in fact, the opposite, God giving to us what we did not deserve. Jesus coming to earth to do for us what we could not do for ourselves by living the life that we were supposed to live, a life of perfect obedience to God, and then dying the death that we were condemned to die in our place. In so doing, he purchased us back. He redeemed us from sin and captivity, and he now offers that freely to all who, who will receive it. But that brings us back to chapter 10. How can they call on somebody they've never heard about? You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if somebody never heard about Jesus, but they at least responded in faith? They responded in faith to the God that they saw, you said, in creation or in their conscience. And they said, God, great spirit in the sky or whatever you are, I don't know anything about you, but I just want to know you and I want to surrender to you. Would not God accept that? Well, again, look at verse 17, our first premise there. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What is the only way for faith to grow up in the heart? The only way is through hearing the gospel. Not just the word about God, but the word about Christ. The preached word about Christ has a mystical, life-giving power in it. The word of God tells you not only what you are supposed to do, the word of God also gives you the power to do it. It's kind of like the words that Jesus would say when he was walking around Jerusalem, when he would look at somebody and say, rise up and walk. 
It's not just a command. In that command is the ability to obey that command. A command would be worthless without the accompanying power to the lame man to stand up and walk. When Jesus gives us the gospel, there comes in the gospel an available power to believe it and to be saved. Here's the analogy I always use with our church. It's kind of like if you had a man, think of a man that was just insane, like literally lost his mind on top of a building. He thinks he's Spider-Man. And so he's going to jump and try to do the thing with his you know, hands and, and he's going to swing around the city. You come up behind this person and you say to them, hey, Bob, don't do that. Bob, I'm going to give you a free choice here. If you jump, you're going to die. I'm going to freely ask you to, 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 to choose to come back down here with me. Now, he's insane. He thinks he's Spider-Man. What's he going to do 100 out of 100 times? He's going to jump every single time. But let's just say that, that you had this, and I know this is not how it works, but had this little like, you know, kind of, you give him a shot and restore his sanity to it. So right before you ask him the question, you poked him with this needle and shoved the serum in and all of a sudden his mind returns to him. Now Bob is sane again and you say to him the exact same question, same words, everything's the same. You say, Bob, you can jump and die or you can come back down here with safety to me. Now, 100 out of 100 times, what is he going to do? He's going to turn and come with you. The difference was not in the way the question was posed. The difference was in the sanity of the one who heard it. What Paul has explained is that with the gospel, when it's preached, comes the ability. Faith is the gift that God works in our heart to believe what we are hearing. The word of God heals your heart as you hear it. Without the preached word of Christ, there can be no faith. You say, well, I'm just, but, but if somebody just looks around at creation, and they look within of their conscience, and they want to know whatever God, I just want to know what God is behind this, wouldn't God count that? There have been some theologians, a guy named Karl Rahner, a Catholic theologian, who even came up with a term for this. He called it the anonymous Christian, somebody who's responding to the parts of God they do see in their religion, their false religion, or in the creation around them. And, and God sees that, their response, and just counts them as a Christian, even though they don't know Jesus' name. You say, what about that person? Interestingly, the book of Acts tells you a story about somebody who would be in that category. The man's name was Cornelius. Stay there in Romans 10. I'm going to take you to Acts 10 for just a minute. So hanging there in Romans 10. Cornelius was, Acts explains, a centurion of the Italian regiment. Watch this. He was a devout man, one who feared God with all of his household, who always gave alms generously to the poor people, and he prayed to God always. Pretty good dude. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying, Cornelius, when he looked at the angel, he was afraid, and he said, what is it, Lord? And so the angel said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up as a memorial before God. So now send for Peter. He will tell you what you must do. Meanwhile, same time on the other side of the city, Peter's having his own dream. This is the dream where he, you know, a sheet comes down from heaven and there's all kinds of squirrels and pigs and stuff in there. And, and, and the voice says, Peter, kill and eat. I call this Peter's um, pigs in a blanket dream. And, uh, and Peter's like, what is this about? And while he's pondering what the message of this dream is, all of a sudden there's a knock at the door and it's some of Cornelius's men and they open it up and they just have this moment where they stare at each other awkwardly and the guy says, hey, Cornelius had a dream. And Peter's like, I had a dream. Maybe these dreams have something to do with each other. And so Peter goes over there and Paul Cornelius and his men are gathered at the house and Peter begins to preach the gospel to them. What's important, listen, is how Peter concludes his sermon to Cornelius. He concludes it like this, to Jesus, all the prophets gave witness that everybody who believes in him 
receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In other words, Cornelius, God has shown me that he will receive you. He will give you forgiveness of sins if you put faith in his name. If you put faith in his name, not Cornelius, good news. God has already accepted you because of how you responded to the knowledge you had. And, and Cornelius, I'm here to announce that you're already saved. You're an anonymous Christian, and now I just get to put a name with it. No, he says, you got to believe in Jesus. And then, then after that, you will receive the forgiveness of sins through his name. What that shows us is that it is necessary to hear the message of the gospel and believe it to get forgiveness. But it also shows us if there is somebody out there whom God enables to respond to the right way, the right way to creation and to their conscience, that God will raise up one of his people to get the gospel to them. Which leads me to premise number two. Paul says they can only hear about it from us. You can only hear about it from us. Verse 14, how can they hear without a preacher? Now, how can they preach unless some church sends them? God has set it up so that they can only hear the gospel through a human instrument. You know what's fascinating? Search the entire New Testament. You will not find one illustration of the gospel being shared apart from a human mouth or writing. Every time the angels show up, they're just there to tell you to go find somebody that will share the gospel with you. When this angel shows up to Cornelius, wouldn't it have been much more efficient for the angel just to have shared the gospel? And just do it right there all at once. He probably would have done a better job. But it's, if I could say it this way, it's kind of against the rules, I guess. Only a human can share the gospel with another human. If people in our generation are to hear the gospel, they have to hear about it through us. And apart from us, there is no gospel. Listen to this. You ever think that maybe the reason God is stirring in some of you here is because he is also stirring in someone over there? At the same time, the kind of Cornelius Peter thing. Maybe that's the reason you're here listening to me this morning. You see, I say that because I once met a Cornelius. In fact, I've met two or three in my life, but the one I'm thinking about was named Fajar. He was in Southeast Asia where I served as a missionary at the beginning of, of my ministry when I was in my 20s. And I was over there for several months and I was trying to learn the language. I wasn't doing a great job. The uh, International Mission Board dropped me off in Southeast Asia. I could say, hi, my name is JD, where's your bathroom? My house is on fire. Um, that was the extent of my language. Um, uh, and so I'm trying to figure things out there and I get a call. I met a couple of Christians um, who lived about three hours from me, a couple of um, Southeast Asian Christians. And um, I, I get a call from one of them, it's about midnight. And he said, hey, I need your help right now. And I was like, well, bro, I'm three hours away from you. He's like, just get down here, just leave now and come down here because this is, this is important. Uh, I was like, what, what is it about? He said, you know, I can't tell you that because they're listening and it's true because our phones were, um, were bugged. So I, I, I go to, he said, meet me at the place. I knew where he was talking about. So I, um, I got on a bus, catch a bus, go down there three or four hours, the wee hours of the morning, four or five o'clock in the morning. I sit down with this guy named Fajar, me, him, and my, my um, Christian friend. And, uh, and my Christian friend says to him, he's like, okay, tell him what you told me. And Fajar says, he says, well, he says, I'm 32 years old. I'm a Muslim. I've always been a Muslim. He said, and I've been very happy as a Muslim. He said, but the, about a month ago, he said, I had this dream. I guess you would call it a dream. He said, uh, in my dream, he said, I was in this field. 
It's as far as you could see in this field, behind me, behind me, in front of me, to the right, to the left. He said there was nothing. I walked for what felt like days in this empty field. He said, suddenly, after walking for days, I heard a voice behind me call my name. And I turned around, and he said, there he was. There was a man there. He towered above me. He was in this radiant white robe. His face, spartamatahari is what he said. It shone like the sun. He said, I couldn't look at it. And he called my name, and he reached inside a copy of, reached inside of his robe, and he pulled out a copy of what he called the Injil, which is their word for gospel. He pulled out this copy of the Injil, and he held it out to me and said, Fajar, this is the only thing that will get you out of this field. He said, I pulled back in terror. He said, because that was Christian, and I could not touch it. I was a Muslim. He said, now, I will tell you that this walking around for what felt like days, it kind of felt like my life, that even though I was a committed Muslim, I just felt empty and lost. He said, so I was curious, but I couldn't, and I backed up. He said, the moment I backed up, I woke up. He said, and I was in this cold sweat, and I knew I'd made a terrible mistake. He said, second night, I went to bed, had the exact same dream. He said, except this time, when he reached inside of his robe and pulled out a copy of the Injil, he said, Fajar, this is the only thing that will get you out of this field. He said, I watched. He said, my hands, they were shaking, and I wanted to take the copy of the gospel, but I just could not work up the strength. I was afraid. He said, so I just I quietly shook my head, less defiant than the first time, but still resisting. And he said, immediately I woke up. He said, I knew I'd made another terrible mistake. He said, third night, I didn't even want to go to sleep. He said, sure enough, I closed my eyes and sleep, and there he was waiting on me in that field. This time there was no walking, just me and him. And he said, he looked at me, and he said, Fajar, this is the last time I'm going to tell you. This is the only thing that will get you out of this field. He said, this time I watched my hands still trembling with fear reach up and take that copy of the gospel. He said, I pulled it into my chest and I hugged it. I hugged it. He said, the next morning I woke up peacefully, peacefully in my bed. Then he looks at me and says, through my friend who's translating, he said, now my friend tells me you are expert at Injil, expert at gospel. He said, can you tell me what my dream means? Now y'all, I was raised in a really, really conservative Baptist church, right? And so dreams and the interpretation thereof were not part of our spiritual repertoire. But I can tell you, I knew exactly what to do in that moment. I was like, bro, you were so in luck. Dream interpretation is my spiritual gift. <laughs> and for the next two hours until the sun came up, I just walked him through, starting what your pastor did, starting in Genesis and walked him all the way through. And I remember getting to the Gospel of Matthew where it talks about Jesus dying on the cross. And I remember seeing these tears well up in his eyes. And he's like, you're telling me this is God. This is, he called him, he kept using the phrase Allah. This is Allah dying for humanity. And I was like, yes. Remember, he just kind of closed his eyes and he stretched out his hands and he said, um, Allahu Akbar, which means their way of saying God is the greatest. God is the greatest. And, and I get to the end and I was like, Fajar, do you want to become a Christian? And he was like, yes, with all of my heart. And I, I said, okay, well, let's, you know, I was like, only one way to do this. Every head bowed, every eye closed, you know, repeat this prayer after me. And uh, you're going to ask Jesus into your heart. And so he, uh, he bows his head, starts to, uh, he gets two phrases into the sinner's prayer, y'all, and I cut him off. I was like, Father, stop, stop. I was like, this is a big deal. You know that we're going to baptize you. And when you know that when you get baptized, you will probably lose your job. You might get kicked out of your family. And you and I both know people in this city that have lost their lives when they did this. Never forget, Fajar, he smiled real big. He said, of course I know that. He said, why do you think it took me a month to work up the courage to come and talk to you? 
He said, but in that month, I decided, I knew that you were going to tell me that that one in the dream was Jesus. And I knew that if he really had died for me and was calling me to follow him, then I would go with him wherever he told me to go, regardless of what I had to leave behind. So let's go ahead and get through the rest of this prayer. At which point I was like, I think you need to lead me in the sinner's prayer because I feel like I need to get saved now. And the reason I share that with you is because I just wonder if right now there's another fajar somewhere that God is stirring in overseas and he's also stirring in somebody here like he was Peter and Cornelius. And the whole intention is you are the one that is to be sent. People can only be saved by hearing about Jesus and they can only hear about him through the witness of a human believer. And maybe the reason God is working in some of you is because he's also working in some of them and he intends to stir his church to get the gospel to them because it's the only way they can hear. Which leads me to premise number three. The task is urgent. The task of urgent. Biltmore, if all this is true, What does that mean for our lives? Not a few of us, but all of us. Listen to this. Only one-third of the people on earth even claim to be Christians. That means at the minimum, there are four and a half billion people on the planet who will say, yes, I am not a Christian. The Joshua Project estimates that about one-third of those are classified as unreached which means that as things stand right now, they have no real chance to hear the gospel before they die. They they, they say that if you were to line these people up five across, arms linked from each other, five across, they would circle the globe, they would circle the globe five times. I want you to get the picture in your mind of that kind of group marching headlong into eternity without God, without even a chance to hear. You who sit under great gospel preaching every single weekend, who can also hear it by turning on the TV, the radio, dialing into hundreds of thousands of podcasts, who who could could go to the bookstore and, and, and order a book. I need you to picture in your minds that many people marching to destruction without even a chance to hear and turn and be saved. Don't turn that into a demographic stat. Joseph Stalin, who I typically don't quote during sermons, but Joseph Stalin, he said, the death of one is a tragedy. He said, the death of a million is just a statistic. That's a a chilling statement coming from him. But what he meant is this. When you look into the face of one, like Fajar, you see somebody like you, made in the image of God, like you, who has the same needs, wants, fears, and desires, like you. But then we turn it into a statistic, like 2.2 billion unreached, 4.5 billion who've never heard the gospel. And we we say, oh, that's just a statistic. That's just the progress of Christianity in the world. How are they going to hear, Paul says, It's like Carl F.H. Henry, the great theologian, used to say, he's like, the gospel means good news, but it's only good news for somebody if it gets to them in time. College, high school students, one of the best things about your generation is that you instinctively seem to care about suffering. You know what's going on globally. You want to help provide clean water in Africa, advocate for education reform and women's rights in the Middle East. You care about the marginalized and suffering groups right here in our own country. You want to get rid of plastic straws to save the turtles. And that's all fine. It's great. But you understand that the worst kind of suffering, the worst kind of suffering has to be eternal suffering, right? 
Suffering in this life is terrible, but it's only temporary. Suffering in the next life is even more terrible, and it is eternal. And so, yes, to the church, Paul says, Romans 10, yes, God wants them to be saved, but how are they going to call on him whom they have not heard about, and how are they going to hear unless they are sent? What does that mean for you personally? I'll tell you what it meant for Paul. Paul says in chapter 1, I consider myself a debtor to people that have never heard. A debtor, the word he used is the same word you use if you owed somebody else a lot of money. I'm in debt to you. Paul never even met these people. Why does he feel in debt to people he's never even met? Paul said, here's why. Because I was no more worthy to hear the gospel than they were. It's not like God saved me because I was on the upper scale. I was unworthy also. And with the incredible mercy of the gospel comes the incredible responsibility to give it to those who have never heard. My senior year of college, I was reading through the book of Romans. My pastor, a little country pastor, had challenged me to read it seven times. He said, read the book of Romans seven times. On my seventh time through, it was one morning. There was nothing special about the morning. In fact, I was already late for class. It was my junior year of college. And I finally came to this understanding where it finally made sense to me. You see, all, all that year I've been struggling with the fairness of the gospel. How was it fair for God to condemn people who hadn't heard on my seventh time through, it finally made sense. God was right to condemn, but he had made a way for all people, but they didn't know about it, and that could only come through me. And I knew in that moment I had three options, only three. Number one, I could deny this truth. A lot of people do that. They have names like Rob Bell, Jen Hatmaker, if you know what those names mean. They're just like, oh, well, let's just change the parts of the Bible we find inconvenient. It's uncomfortable to believe this, so I'll just change God and make him like I think he should be. But I knew that once you start going down that road, there literally is no bottom to it. Once you become the arbiter of what's true in Scripture and what's not. So denying it did not seem like it was a real possibility. Number two is you could just ignore it, which is what the majority of the church in America seems to do. Let's just go about playing church, acting like we're trying to get people from their team to our team, and let's just kind of show up and you know, throw a few, some change into the offering, throw our lunch money in there, and let's pretend like we're making a difference. That didn't seem like it was possible either. I knew the third option was to embrace it. I knew I could give my life fully to it, which I chose to do. I could at least say like Isaiah, Lord, here am I, send me. I had this vision of walking, I remember walking through the city by some railroad tracks, the Holy Spirit just really pressed this on my heart of like, say that there was a kid on the railroad tracks. He's four years old, but he couldn't walk for some reason, and a train was coming. Right? And so I, I see this kid, I see the train coming, I know the train's going to run over him. So what do I do in that moment? Do you get down on your knees and you pray, Lord, I just want to know what your will is. God, would you just move in my heart? Give me peace about what you want. No, idiot. Right? You know what God's will is. Pick up the kid. Right? The Lord is not willing that any should perish. We always talk about finding God's will. It's not lost. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, which means that my life and your life in some way has to be about impacting the people that have never heard. The question is, do you actually believe this? Well, I used to think that it was unfair for God to condemn those who had not heard. Now I understand from the book of Romans that that is not true. What is not fair is that those of us who have heard so much do so little to get the message to those who have heard nothing at all. 
What is not fair is that those of us who have heard so much about a God who has done everything do so little to get the gospel to those who have heard nothing at all. Biltmore Church, this generation of Christians is responsible for this generation of souls all over the world. We're responsible. They're the only way they can hear. This generation has to hear from this generation. To see, that means our choices, to quote John Piper here, our choices are to go, to send, or to disobey. Let me just go ahead and state the obvious, okay? God has not called everybody listening to me right now to go live overseas. For some of you, he has. For a lot more of you than are going, he probably has. For some of you, it's your kids that he's going to call. But he hasn't called all of you. That you still have a role in getting the gospel to those who have not heard it. And yes, that means sharing the gospel with your neighbor. Yes. But it also means giving generously and living sacrificially so that others can take the gospel to those who have not heard. If you know Christian history at all, you're familiar with a man named William Tyndall. He was the first guy to translate your Bible into English, into common English. Paid for it by, with his life, was burned at the stake by the King of England. He had famous words where he's tied it to the stake and he's like, God opened the King of England's eyes and he dies. He wrote the first Bible. But the part of the story you don't know, at least I didn't know, was that you'd never know about William Tyndall and you wouldn't have an English copy of the Bible if it weren't for a guy named Humphrey Monmouth. Now talk about a name, right? If you're looking for a name for your kid or grandkid, I would not suggest Humphrey or Monmouth, just for the record, okay? Humphrey Monmouth, William Tyndall led him to Christ, 14th century. Humphrey Monmouth, excuse me, sorry, 16th century. Humphrey Monmouth was a very wealthy merchant, had a fleet of ships. So Monmouth not only made the translation project possible and the Bible printing possible, he then used his fleet of merchant ships to take the gospel all around the world. So that when the king of England decided he wanted to kill William Tyndall and burn all the copies of the Bible and stamp out the Reformation, he wasn't able to do it because Humphrey Monmouth had already used his vast network that he had gotten through business to get the gospel all around the English empire. We have a printing press named for William Tyndall, right? It's a Christian printing press, Christian printing press but nobody's ever heard of Humphrey Monmouth. Yet both of them were essential and you holding that Bible in your hand and in four nations like ours having access to the gospel, both of them are necessary. God has called a handful of us to be William Tyndall's. He's called you, some of you, you're gonna be missionaries and your kids are gonna be missionaries, but he's also called a lot of you to be Humphrey Monmouths, which means that you are going to live and to give in such a way that it enables us, it enables others who are called to be the Tyndall's to go. You can go or you can send. Here's the deal though. Those who sin should be every bit as committed to the work as those who go. So again, when it comes to the Great Commission, we got three options, go, send, or disobey. And those who send have to be every bit as committed as those who go. It is not right that we have people in Afghanistan and Indonesia and in parts of India who are daily offering their lives while we sit back and live in comfort and ease and do relatively nothing to get the gospel into their mouths and their hands so they can go. Do you understand what I'm saying? Go or send or disobey. That's the message of the book of Romans. Why don't you bow your heads, if you will, at all of our campuses or if you're joining us here at home. I've got three questions for you. I just want you to reflect on. I want to let the Holy Spirit, the real preacher, 
She let him go to work for just a minute. Maybe God is calling you to go. And it might feel crazy to you right now. Maybe you're 50 years old. You might be at the, at the apex of your career. Maybe in your 20s. Maybe you're a high school student. Maybe you're in middle school. Maybe you just retired. One of the greatest opportunities right now are for retired couples who can go overseas to help mentor young teams, show them how to live, help be a part of that effort. I don't, maybe you just, there's something. I just want you to start a conversation. Find one of your pastors there at your campus afterwards and say, let's start talking. Maybe it's to go on a short-term mission trip this year. It's almost always the first step. Maybe you can just say, hey, pastor, tell me when. I know we're coming out of lockdown. Show me when and how to take this next step to go over there. Is that you? You're like, I don't know what's happening to me right now, but there's something that God is saying, you, this is you. Maybe he's calling you to live sacrificially and give generously so that others can go. You're gonna be a part of the sending team and that means sacrificial giving. Not lunch money, sacrificial giving. Maybe you need to devote yourself to prayer. Maybe there needs to be a bunch of groups that start up here, built more church that pray for hours in the week for what's going on around the world in unreached places. Maybe that's happening to you right now. Here's a third question. Maybe you're here right now and you're saying, this is what I hate about Christians. They're always talking about how to convert us. Let me go ahead and admit something to you, okay? You are 100% correct. Our hope for you is that you would come to know Jesus and I do not make apology for that. But how could we not? How could we believe what we believe and not plead with you? We're not gonna force you. We can't do that. We live in a free country and we're grateful for that. You gotta make up your mind, but we want you to know. And maybe you could see in our passion and hear in our voices that we really believe this. Maybe you take it seriously. Father, I pray for whatever you're doing in this moment. I pray for that last group that may be confused right now. Like, what are we talking about? Why is this so urgent? I pray that before this service is over, they would say to that person that invited them, tell me more. Show me why you invited me today. Show me why you're so passionate that I come to understand. God, we give you these moments. You're the only one that can send and give belief. We pray. God, we offer these things to you in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen.